0: Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 4. After Hours with Paddy Callahan. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. My name is David. Usually I'm joined by my friend Matt to discuss a chapter of The Great Divorce. However, this is an After Hours episode where I invite a guest onto the show. And today I am very excited to welcome New York Times bestselling author... Paddy Callahan to discuss her recent book, *Becoming Mrs. Lewis*, which recounts the improbable love story between Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. Paddy, welcome to Pints with
1: Jack. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Did I scare Matt off? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Did I just make sure he didn't show up.
0: No, 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 no. We 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 keep him out of this.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm, I I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Well, we like to begin our episodes with a quotation, and normally we read from Lewis, but I think it's fitting today that we draw from his wife. Mm -hmm. So the quotation is from Smoke on the Mountain. If we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become
1: of us? It's my favorite quote of hers. (laughs) Whenever I start a speech, um, I spoke to a library today, I always start with that quote because I found it in that essay at the front of Smoke on the Mountain, just this little obscure question hidden in an essay on fear. And I'd never heard anybody even talk about that essay. And so when I found that question, I searched the whole essay to find an answer. And I didn't because she answered it with her life.
0: Yeah, I created a graphic for that on Instagram today and I sent it to everyone I knew.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great question because it it gives us a little bit off the hook. It doesn't say because you are brave or because you are a warrior or because you can do hard things. It says, if we should ever grow brave. And I love that because it gives us some room to transform.
0: Mm-hmm. And you cover that for Joy in her book. Yeah. Uh, so cheers to that.
1: Oh, hey i want some
0: it's very nice
1: yeah i can tell even through the screen
0: i fell in love with joy when i found out she drank whiskey it's like i knew i knew jack chose well yes he did but please tell us a little bit about yourself where did you grow up how did you become a writer
1: all right so i live right now in the south i live in birmingham alabama um and i this is my 13th novel And all of my other ones are southern set, southern based and contemporary in modern times. This is my first historical. And so I'm often called uh, a southern writer, which makes me laugh because I was born in New Jersey. So unless I mean a South Jersey girl, it always makes me laugh. So I was born in New Jersey. Uh, My father is a pastor. And so I grew up as a preacher's kid, which is is its own book someday.
0: Oh, absolutely. You have to write that.
1: Absolutely. Right now, my parents are still around, so we're going (laughs) to spare them the details. And then I, but I grew up in Philadelphia. So I grew up in Philadelphia until I was 12. And then when I was 12, my dad moved to South Florida to start a church. And while they were trying to decide where to put the church and where to um, live, I went to four different schools in four years, wow. and so that's where I was already kind of a bookworm nerd. But that is where I really fell in love with reading. Um, it seemed to be the only place the world made sense, and so I had a predilection and and, and just was really enamored with the power of story. And then in high school, I took something completely useless. And instead of taking something that would have helped me, I took Latin. (laughs) And it was there that I fell in love with mythology. So all that to say that I was always writing and always reading. But I never, nobody ever said, you know, writing's a thing you can do in the world. And I love telling kids all the time, you know, writing's a thing you can do in the world. I didn't know a single writer. Authors to me were just people on book flaps so I went to college to be a nurse and my master's degree is in nursing. And then when I had three kids under five, which is the perfect time to start something new, right? (laughs) You have all that extra time. I know just in in that three hour between 4.30 and 6.30 in the morning, I wrote my first novel. So that's kind of the short version of Patty C. Henry
0: the amazing part of that story isn't just the fact that you got up that early to write regularly. It's also that your kids also let you actually do that and didn't wake up and adjust their schedule accordingly.
1: I know, right? How sneaky did I have to be? (laughs) So I wrote that way for years. And then once they went to school, I quit that terrible habit. Um, And I wrote when they went to school. So that was a that was about a year, year or two that I was doing that until they started preschool and school. But I've kept up that morning routine. My mornings are, are when I write, always have been.
0: And what about C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman? When did they enter your life?
1: They entered my life as far back as I can remember. Um, I often say, you know, we all fall into our own kind of love with C.S. Lewis at different times in our life. And I fell into mine when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And my dad's um, office was, was of course, completely lined with C.S. Lewis books. (laughs) And I found the screw tape letters.
0: And how old were you?
1: Right. You should (laughs) not read the screw tape letters when you're 12. I was quite certain that Satan was following me around my entire childhood Uh, But then I fell through the wardrobe door of Narnia and um, his work, just like you, obviously, since you have this podcast, his work has meant different things to me at different times in my life. And if I picked up the screw tape letters last year compared to 10 years ago, it would mean something different because his work is so alive in that way, in that no matter what time period in our life we pick something up, it hits us where it needs to hit us. I was enamored mostly with his allegories. So Pilgrim's Regress was one of my favorites, The Great Divorce. Um, I was totally enamored with Till We Have Faces because of my um, enamored way with mythology and that's the retelling of Cupid and Psyche. And then when I met Joy and realized that she wrote that book with him, I of course loved that book even more. But I always knew who Joy was. But I always knew of her as the dying wife of C.S. Lewis. Mm,
0: I think that's very common for most people.
1: Right. She was either the dying wife in Shadowlands or the dying wife in A Grief Observed. And I felt like she had been put into this box as not only wife of, but dying wife of, which Mm. is worse. And even I had kind of put her in that safe little box Until the day that I decided to write about her and started doing my research and realized what an amazing, fiery, brilliant, fascinating, brave, bold woman she was, how ahead of her time she was. And when I first started thinking about writing this novel, I was mainly approaching it from what we said at the beginning, which is the improbable love story But as soon as I began the research, I realized that it was far past just the improbable love story, that this was actually her story.
0: And what actually prompted you to even think about writing this book?
1: So I think that, um, do you write?
0: I blog, which is kind of like the fast food of writing novels.
1: No, it's not. It's (laughs) it's the true thing. Some of my favorite readings are blogs. Um. Well, then you know that often the seed for something is planted long before you see it. Sometimes things hit you like boom on the side of the head, but other times they're this seed that was planted and you don't even know it. And I think that all of my novels are in one way or another deal with the vagaries of love. They deal with relationships, with um, families, with how we become who we really are in the midst of relationships. And I was at a party with some writer friends of mine, and it was Christmas time about four years ago, was talking about how I felt like I was in a dry spell, kind of at a dead end, that I wasn't really thrilled with everything that I was doing, and that I was a little stuck. And she asked the perfect question, way better than a piece of advice. She asked the question that kind of knocked things loose for me, what the poet David White calls the beautiful question, And she said, my defenses were down, and she said, well, what would you write about if you could write about anything you wanted? Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I said, fell out of my mouth, Joy Davidman. I hadn't known I was thinking about it. I hadn't put it on my list of book ideas. I hadn't thought about it before, but I must have thought about it before, because why would it have fallen out of my mouth? So I think unconsciously, I'd been wanting to do it for a long time but I don't write historical fiction. And that's what I said to her, because we, you know, if you write, we all make our excuses for not doing the work. (laughs) And I said, right, am I, okay. And I said to her, but I don't write historical fiction. And she said, well, I do, I'll do it. I said, no, no, I've got this. I've 100% got this. Um, Joy and I are a team. And we really were from that moment on, we were a team.
0: Joy did for you what she did for Lewis when he thought he was in a dry spell as well. And after an evening of drinking whiskey and talking, he started producing Till We Have Faces.
1: You're right, I haven't thought about it like that. And I made that a really pivotal scene in the book because I think it shows almost more than anything else how connected they were. That he would turn to her with that dry spell of his. And she asked the just right question. She said, you're right, because she said, Well, what do you want to write about? What haven't you written about that you want to write about? And he said that he had tried for years to write about Cupid and Psyche and had approached it from all these different angles and had been unable to find the right angle until he talked to her about it. But yeah, I think she metaphorically came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I want someone to tell my story in a way that relates to other people, in a way that isn't biography Um, And the biographies about her are amazing, but in a way, in a narrative format that reaches people in a new way. I always say that when I first started the research, as you well know, since you're so familiar with Lewis, there's always two Joy Davidman camps, Mm -hmm. right? There's the Joy Davidman camp of the brash New York Jew who inserted herself into his life, give me a break. And then (laughs) the fascinating, brilliant woman who enchanted him, who he thought of as an intellectual equal, who he said, no one can knock the props out for me like she can, that she can prick my bubbles, that her mind is lit as a leopard. So which camp was it? So I decided really early on that I was tired of hearing about her from other people and that I wanted to hear from her. And that's what the book is. It's written in what I call the key of empathy from her point of view. Mm -hmm. Lucky for us, she has loads of letters and correspondence and essays and poetry and novels. So there's so much we can read. So I can tell the story from her.
0: Yeah. It also reminds me a little bit of when Lewis and Tolkien said that they were just going to have to start writing the books that they wanted to read. In the same way you felt that she hadn't been properly represented, and also in the way that you feel she needs to be represented. So you went ahead and wrote it.
1: I love that. You're pulling out these great ties I hadn't made. This is <laughs> one of my favorite things about this novel or any novel I write, but especially this one, is how people see things in it that are so meaningful that I missed completely. That, you know, but that is so true because she came alive in a way that let her tell the story. In a way I would want to read like that is the story I would want to read about their relationship. I wanted to know how did she come to meet him? How did she get enough bravery to write to him? Who just sits down and writes to the to C.S. Lewis um, (laughs) from the United States and says, I have questions for you, sir. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to know how it all unfolded. And the only way for me to know how it unfolded was to write it.
0: Well, a good number of our listeners have already read your book, uh, but for those who haven't, could you just give us a one, two minute sketch of Joy's life and what you cover in the book?
1: Absolutely. So let me just say this real quick. I don't cover this completely in the book, but Joy was born in April of 1915 um, to two immigrant parents, Russian and Polish immigrant parents, in what was then called the Jewish ghetto of the Bronx of New York. All that would matter was assimilation and accomplishment. And they were very, very strict with joy, very harsh. That's why the opening scene of the novel is a scene from her childhood, um, the prologue, and how she dealt with that. I mean, they knew from the beginning that she was a genius. Um, She could read by three years old. She graduated from high school at 14 years old. At nine years old, she read H.G. Wells' History of the World and announced herself an atheist, (laughs) right? She might be today what we call the strong-willed child. Uh So I open right after or right when she's married um, to Bill Gresham and has two young children, and she has a breakdown and what she called a mystical experience. Her husband, Bill, had been in the Spanish Civil War And had what we would today probably call PTSD. And he called to say that he wasn't coming home that night and he might not ever. And he had threatened suicide before, so she was worried. And this atheist, communist, materialist woman found herself on her knees. And she didn't understand why she was on her knees. And in her words, she said her ego cracked open and she knew that something or somebody was with her. That was completely made of love, and then she has my second favorite quote when she wrote about it. That said, life is too intense to be endured with logic alone. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's really and good. And set off on this journey to figure out what that 30 seconds meant, and that mere 30 seconds that somebody else might put off as an emotional reaction or you know, something they can't solve. A woman like Joy Davidman changed her life over it and she set off, and that's what the book is about. She set off from that moment on a transformational journey that not only changed her life and her family and her heart, but of course the life and the heart and for us, the work of one of our most beloved authors of the 20th century. And so this is the journey of that transformational journey. What happened from the time she had that mystical experience And in her search, she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis. And they had about three years of pen friendship before she got on a boat and sailed to England. And that's when the story gets really good. (laughs) And not because it gets easy, but because it gets harder. They both have so much to overcome to be together, Mm -hmm. internally and externally.
0: What motivated you to write it as a work of historical fiction rather than going for a strict biography?
1: You know, number one, is because I write fiction, mm-hmm. so it's my it's my wheelhouse. It's what I do. I write novels, and because I have always and do believe in the incredible power of story. Um, I think we're able to say things in fiction that we can't say in nonfiction. And I read my share of nonfiction too. I love it. Um, I love biography. I love memoir. I love memoir. It's one of my favorite. And I wanted this to read like a memoir. But I believe in the power of fiction to tell a truth. I think we use nonfiction to tell the facts. And I think we use fiction to tell a truth. And that's what I wanted to do. And I also felt like, we could really get inside her heart and her mind in narrative fiction in a way you can't or shouldn't in biography. If you're writing straight biographical fiction, unless you're using their words, you can't you shouldn't jump into their head and try and guess what they're thinking. But in fiction you have more leeway. So that's why I wanted to do it that way. Plus I felt like her story maybe hadn't reached my audience, you know, the the people who would read my books and that if I was going to do nonfiction, it still wouldn't reach my audience. And part of my goal, if I had a goal in writing this book, was to reach a new generation of women. um, And then the women who had heard of her to tell her story in a different way, to give them a viewpoint of her that they might not have had before. And people are still not going to like her. People are still going to you know, there isn't a 100% chance of, of ability, no matter who <laughs> you are. And, um, you know, she's a bold woman. And whether you're telling it from the seat of her heart or not, you can have some empathy. But she was so fascinating. And I was also stunned by the twists and turns in the story. You know, it very much the story is she got on a ship, she sailed there, they fell in love, they got married the end. When, of course, it was much more complicated than that.
0: And messier. I I mean, I can definitely say that being in the style of historical fiction really helped change my perspective on Lewis. And I will readily admit that I did feel a little uncomfortable in the sections where Joy is speaking of him in a romantic sense and even an erotic way. I felt kind of embarrassed. It was that kind of shocking way when you find out, when you hear details of your parents' first date or you learn about the birds and the bees and then realize the implications for your parents.
1: I love that. That's hilarious.
0: But for me, it really helps close that emotional gap to think of Lewis as a man, faults and all, in his scruffy goodness, and not just simply as an incredible author.
1: I love that. Thank you.
0: And because we got to spend so much time inside Joy's head, it really helped flesh it out for me in a way I don't think a more traditional biography would have. And we get to experience a lot of things firsthand, so to speak, like when she's meeting Lewis for the first time. And because I'm in her head, I get to experience what that would have been like. Or when they're playing multilingual Scrabble, because yeah, everybody does that.
1: Everybody does that. I was just doing that before you called.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or uh, the, one of the other moments I really liked was when Lewis was confessing his nervousness when he's about to speak to a group of children. And if you just restrict yourself to Lewis's main books, you don't get to see that side of him.
1: Thank you. It was really important to me to make him human mm. in all his frailty. Um, I often say that C.S. Lewis at that time didn't know that he was C.S. Lewis. <laughs> you know, he didn't know he was going to have a statue in Belfast. He didn't know that there would be whole societies named after him. He was just a man trying to teach and live his life and ask the big questions. He lived in a man's man's world, but he was also a really wounded man. And I think we forget that about him. And so to make him emotionally vulnerable with a woman feels awkward, but at the same time, doesn't that let us know him better? He had a lot of scars and wounds his, you know, of course his mom died when he was young and that almost destroyed him. He was sent off to boarding school almost immediately. And it was horrific boarding school. He watched his best friend get killed right next to him. The man wasn't his best friend, but the man he admired the most was killed right next to him while he only caught the shrapnel and was sent home. So I think that there's, When we know those real wounds about him, he can become more human. When we know that he always had a pipe or a cigarette, that he got nervous when he spoke, that he gobbled his food. These are all very human things that kind of take that carved statue of Lewis off the pedestal and brings him down into the world with us as a man with Scruffy patches on his elbows, ash on his on his shoulder, and nervous to talk to a woman, and I'd like I liked making him human.
0: (laughs) Now I did read some reviews that didn't enjoy the format. And one of our listeners, because I put out on Twitter and Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you and I solicited questions. And Christine asked how do you respond to critics who dislike the style and say that it's just a fluffy romance? And I do have to point out that when she asked the question, lots of people immediately jumped in and started defending you. Uh, oh, my favorite was Anne Margaret said, I love her writing style. It is moving and poetic.
1: Awesome. Okay, I'm sorry <laughs> I missed this whole Twitter feed. I need to go back and look. So, yeah, it is so far from fluffy romance that I can't imagine where that comes from. The, they don't even kiss until the very end of the book. Um, there's no overt romantic, um, unless you call a lot of intellectual and philosophical chit chat romantic. (laughs) I do. Okay, great. Yeah. And I know for some of us that's super romantic, but I think that the majority of the input has been simply amazing. Um, The people I was the most nervous about were the people at the Wade Center, and they welcomed it with huge open arms. I spoke there in December and did a podcast with them. You know, they essentially said this fills a gap, which is what you just said. It kind of fills this emotional gap of why did Lewis love this woman? So what I try to remember with something like what you just said is that we all read through our own mirror and we all see people not always as they are, but a little bit of, of who we are. Mm. And so I couldn't, this couldn't have been my first novel. I would have been devastated by people thinking it was too romantic or I didn't give Lewis his due or one review called her Jezebel. I would have become very, I know that one's one of my favorites, um, one <laughs> of them rolling his eyes in heaven. Um, so I think that what I've learned is that It doesn't matter that I'm sorry she feels like it's fluffy romance. Oh, she
0: didn't, but she has heard other people complain. Oh,
1: she has heard other people say that. Christine loved it. (laughs) Oh, hi, Christine. Sorry about that. Um, Well, for whoever else thought it was fluffy romance, you know, that makes me a little sad, but also it's the story Joy wanted me to tell. She wanted me to tell the story of their improbable romance and all of the things that she had to overcome to become Mrs. Lewis. And the things that she had to overcome, and it's funny because some people don't think it's romantic enough so because it takes too long, (laughs) Um, but every internal and external hurdle that she had to overcome was part of her transformational journey of becoming. But also he had to. He had external and internal blocks he had to overcome. And if that's kind of romantic, then so be it.
0: That was a great answer. My response would have just been to tell them that they're dead inside.
1: <laughs> that too. That too. That too.
0: Now, the most common question that I got concerned your sources. Katie on Instagram said, "You seem to capture Jack and Joy's voices so well as that of her first husband. What did you do to get inside their minds? Were there lots of letters, diaries, primary sources? You mentioned a few of them earlier."
1: Yes. So, um what I'm super blessed with is the primary sources, because Joy was a avid writer i mean she's been writing since she, she could hold a crayon. so we have letters essays her letters are amazing if anybody after they read my novel no i'm kidding but <laughs> go get her um don w king who has been such an advocate for her work he's
0: going to be on the show later this year
1: is he i get to be with him in Montreal in april we're doing that We're doing an in conversation. I can't wait to meet him. But he did such an extraordinary job of compiling her letters. And when you read that book of letters, you think how boring a book of letters. It reads like a story. It reads like a journal. Because even in a letter, Joy was the most articulate, not only about her internal you know, journey, but what she was seeing on the external world. And she wouldn't just describe the train ride. She would describe everything she saw on the train ride. I would write a letter and I would say, I took the train from Edinburgh, to, but not joy. You know, she described everything and And she also described how she was feeling. So when you read these letters, and she was brutally honest in these letters, brutally honest about her own foibles, about the mistakes she was making, about how she had kind of laid too much blame on her ex-husband. So I was able to get into her head through these. And as we all know by now, about five years ago, they found that box in Jean Wakeman's closet. And in that box were some other papers. And um, in that box was a folder. And in Joy's handwriting on the folder was written the word courage. And then underneath the word courage was written 45 love sonnets for C.S. Lewis. Now, some of the love sonnets had been written before she met him, but they had been compiled for him. So, yes, I had lots of little sneak peeks into her mind. And then, of course, we have volumes of letters from (laughs) Lewis. So we know kind of the cadence of his language and how he would have answered a letter. Yeah,
0: I think it would have been very easy to attempt something like this and end up with a caricature, a Dick Van Dyke kind of character in Mary Poppins.
1: Yes, that's awesome.
0: I was very grateful uh, that that didn't happen because as someone who is English and lives in America, every other person I meet insists on trying out their English accent on me.
1: I, I almost tried, but I gave up really quickly.
0: I sometimes when smart I smart
1: lady, I know when I was over there, I kept trying to to fake it, but you can't. It's not an accent you can fake well. No, so, I can do a southern accent really well, though.
0: <laughs> but you also visited England. You went to Oxford and you went to the Kilns. I actually got to go there myself last year.
1: Isn't it amazing? Did you get chill bumps when you walked in?
0: It was it was very surreal. Uh, Actually, one of the listeners sent us a first edition of The Great Divorce, and as soon as I opened it up, I smelt it, and I was just back at the kilns. It had that grandparent's house kind of smell.
1: Yes, that's such a good description. The grandparents I'm a grandparent now, so that's kind of weird, but yes. (laughs) The grandparent's house kind of smell. I... When I walked in that house, I'd imagined it so many times because I didn't go visit Oxford and England until I'd finished writing the book.
0: Wow. So you got to experience it. So when you're, you've written about joy coming to Oxford for the first time, and then you get to experience it yourself for the first time.
1: It was like walking into my own movie. Yes. (laughs) So it was actually, I didn't finish the book. I'd finished the rough draft. And what I wanted to do was finish it to the point where I needed to fill in the details and make sure they were right. So then I went and I arranged this little trip that I called In the Steps of Joy. And I went everywhere that was in the book. Mm -hmm. So whether it was St. Paul's, Westminster, then on to Oxford, the train ride she would have taken, Paddington Station, I wanted to see everything from her eyes. And thankfully, Oxford has not changed that much since 1950. The only real thing that had changed was the Eastgate Hotel has been remodeled. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, I could see it from her eyes. Maudlin, the Addison's Walk, the Bird and Baby, Holy Trinity, all of them, I could, you know, I saw through her eyes. And then I could go back when I got home and enrich the story with all those details. But when I walked in the kilns, I got all the chills. (laughs) I was like, this is This is amazing because it's so much more than a house. Yeah,
0: I I love the fact that students are there and they're studying and giving tours. The place isn't a museum. It's whatever that living, pulsating spirit, muse, whatever it was that imbued C.S. Lewis, it continues in the house today.
1: Don't you think he'd be thrilled to know that people were studying there and reading
0: I think he might be a little disappointed as to how tidy it is.
1: He might be. Joy might be really happy to see that. Oh, I'm sure she would be, yeah. (laughs) She would be really happy to see how tidy it is. But yes, when I walked up to his office, I didn't realize it was his office at first because I'd always imagined his office downstairs. Mm -hmm. And so we were standing in the office. The tour guide, um, it was a young lady, was about to talk and... And I just had all these chill bumps, and I was looking out the window. And then she said it was his office, and I got all teary eyed. I was like, "Oh." This is it. <laughs> so I was a little bit of a mess. So, and I was walking through the house, sketching it, mm-hmm. sketching the floor plan, so that I could say, you know, when she walked in the door, the common room was to the left, the dining room was to the right. Morning's off, and I was sketching it. And some lady said, "What are you doing?" Another <laughs> lady, in the door thing. I said, "I just don't want to forget it." <laughs>
0: One thing you mentioned earlier, Don King's books, as a result of reading your book, when I finished it, I then immediately went to Amazon, got Joy's books of poetry and her letters. And I was particularly interested in the poetry because you begin each of the chapters with a little, little couplet from one of her sonnets. The book actually arrived when we were having a whiskey evening at our house. We'd invited a load of people over and I went, oh, let's read some poetry. So we, we read some of her poetry. A lot of it is very depressing. So it was good that we had the whiskey there.
1: That's what whiskey's for. Exactly. That's what it's for. (laughs) Uh, Yes, she was not afraid to dive into the deeper, darker parts of her own psyche and other people's psyches. She was willing to look at the shadow side of things. And I think that's what made her so brave because she saw that it wasn't all light and life that she could look at the darker side of it and face it. But yes, I mean, her poetry was about death. I mean, she won the Yale Younger Poets Award for her poetry about the Spanish Civil War. So she she was willing to go there.
0: Yeah, not exactly the cheeriest of subjects. Um, one of the listeners, Colleen, she asked what it was like putting words into the mouths and thoughts into the heads of someone who still had living relatives. Because I heard that you had met Joy's son, Douglas Gresham. I mean, what was that like and uh, how did that change your perspective after meeting
1: him? So this is a great story. For me, it's a great story. But first, let me answer writing without thinking about them. Like I said before, I, I don't, this could have never been my first novel because I've learned through the past 18 years of writing how to, not always successfully, but to write a book like this, put that back here, put that on the back burner, put that in a place where it's not bothering the actual work. What helped a lot was that I was writing this book in secret. I didn't tell anyone I was working on it. The only people who knew I was working on it were some of my very dearest friends, my agent and my family.
0: So rather like Joy's sonnets.
1: Yes, you make some good connections. (laughs) So I was really quiet about it. And in doing that, I could almost pretend that nobody would ever see it which is a trick we play on ourselves as writers. If you pretend nobody else will ever see it, then you can write it because there's always the delete button, right? And I just tried not to think too much about who would read it that was related. Now, the only person left that is blood related is her son, Douglas. When I started writing this book, Davy had already passed. So I knew that Douglas was alive and well and lived on Malta. And that eventually I would need his permission. Um, I didn't need his permission to write the book or even publish the book, but I did need his permission to publish it in the form it's in now, because I have, as you said, poetry and I put real words in both their mouths. So I knew that I would need his permission, but I think I was playing a little bit of Scarlett O'Hara. Like I'll think about that tomorrow is <laughs> as as another day. I'll think about that tomorrow. Um, and then one day when the rough draft was done and it was right before I went to England, actually, I got an email that said, hello, Palti. See, I did it. I did English accent. Um, This is Douglas Gresham. Um, I hear you've been asking after my mother. May I help you? I was like, oh man, now what? Um, so I called my agent and I said, what do I do? And she said, you tell him the truth. So I wrote back and I said, I've written a novel about your mother because I admire her. I've written a novel about your mother because I want to introduce her to a new generation of women. I've written a novel about your mother to honor her. And he wrote back, bravo, or something to that effect. And so then we started talking and emailing. And then I said, well, where are you right now? Because I could tell that when I was calling, it wasn't too far away. And he said, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, giving a lecture. And I said, I'm in Spartanburg, South Carolina, giving a lecture. Do not move. (laughs) And he didn't. And I went and spent the, the morning with him and talked and listened to. I didn't do a lot of talking. He told all the stories. And he's just been incredibly supportive ever since. So he has been incredibly supportive, and I consider him now more than just like Joy's son. I consider him a friend. He's, he's open hearted and, and willing to share, and anybody who's honoring his mother.
0: I would love it if at some point I discovered somebody was writing a, a book to honor my mother. Just putting that out there for any listeners.
1: Is your mom, do, should we write a novel about her?
0: Oh, totally. That'd be really good. Um, <laughs>
1: probably the
0: hardest part of the book to read was the point at which Joy discovers that she's got terminal cancer. The, the agony and the ecstasy, you know, her happiness that she is now finally with Jack as a couple, but knowing that her time is going to be limited. Many people in my family have been affected by cancer. My dad died a few years ago. And in preparation for this interview, I found out that you'd also had a personal encounter. I mean, did you bring any of that to Joy's story? What was that like?
1: I did. Um, And I don't mind saying. So Joy died of breast cancer, metastasized breast cancer when she stood and her leg broke. Um, And one of the most horrifying things to me and heartbreaking things about this story for me was that she didn't have to die at 45 years old um, of breast cancer because she knew something was wrong. She kept telling the doctors something was wrong. She knew she had a lump in her breast and she asked them about it. And yes, I had breast cancer. It's been six years. I'm totally clean, totally fine. Um, It was caught early. I did all the things, surgeries and the chemo. I did all the things. And that could have been her. And that really affected me. It was just one more thing that I felt tied us together. One more thing besides being a wife and a mother and a writer and struggling with how do you balance motherhood and writing and Um, when you get a diagnosis like that, the fear is so overwhelming, but I had to multiply it by a thousand because when I heard the news, you know, it was early, it was small. Um, it was treatable. And for her, by the time they gave her the news, it had spread everywhere. And they told her it was hopeless, which in the end it wasn't because of the miracle, but yes, it was hard to write about, um, I remember my son was a senior. My youngest was a senior in high school when I was finishing this novel. He's a sophomore in college now. And my office is in the house. And he was sitting in the living room doing homework. And I I started crying in the office. And he goes, are you okay in there? And um, I was I was writing that scene.
0: I've read your book twice, and as soon as we get to that point, I just have to finish the book, I, and I, I need to get to the end with cance- cancelling whatever else I'm doing for the rest of the day. I love that. Someone on Twitter, when I was talking about this, she described Joy as brilliant and flawed. Mm. How would you sum her up as a person?
1: I think that's a really great summary. Um, I would add the word complicated. Because I think we're all flawed. I don't know anyone who isn't. You do. I don't want to meet them. So um, she was definitely flawed and she would be the first person to tell you about her flaws. That's part of what I loved about her was that she was so self-aware of her own foibles and her own, you know, effect on other people. She wasn't clueless. Um, but how I would describe her, I would say she is brilliant, um, interesting complicated, bold, brave. I use the word fiery a lot. I think that she would in this day and age be almost a celebrity for her personality and her writing. Um, How bold she is in speaking the truth even when people don't want to hear it. But brilliant and flawed, whoever said that was nailed it. I
0: agree. (laughs) Well, related to that, people do react to joy very differently. In the book, you talk about the difference between Warney's reaction to her and Tolkien's. Yes. What, what aspect of her personality do you think sends people in one direction or the other?
1: Their own mirrors, mm. their own viewpoints of the world. Um, so you named perfect example Tolkien versus Warney. They met the same woman at the same time in the same decade, in the same, probably in the same week. And one had one reaction to her and one had the completely opposite reaction to her. And I think that comes from their inner being. So Tolkien was a he was a staunch Catholic who did not believe in divorce. And she was a divorced woman. He um, thought that she was kind of brash and and, brash is a good word. And I think that that is because, you know, he didn't like women on their on their turf. He didn't like women showing up at the pub drinking, drinking pints. Yes, drinking pints with Jack. And see how I snuck that in there, David? (laughs) Pints with Jack. Drinking pints with Jack and um, participating in conversations that were what he would consider not women's realm. So he is looking at her through his filter and not approving of what he sees. Then over here, you have Warnie who is fascinated with history and literature and interesting people. And what he sees in her is all the light and goodness and interesting things she has to say. And he wants to write a book with her. Yeah. So here are two men, both Inklings, both in Oxford, both brother and best friend of Lewis, and they see her diametrically opposed. And I think that has everything to do with who they are more than who she is.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense because uh, I said in an email to you, I bought this book for my sister and my mother was visiting at Christmas and stole it. So she's now read it a couple of times as well. Oh. And the thing she really struggled with was the fact that Joy could leave her children for six months and go to England and then send them to boarding school. And my mother could never do that. Right. So that was the part of her personality that, that she struggled with. But do you, so do you think four that...
1: was four months, but yeah. Was it? Oh,
0: four months, sorry.
1: Yeah. That's okay. Some people tell me a year. She left her kids for a year. It gets bigger every time. Um, (laughs) And actually, it wasn't even a full four months. But yes, that was a really hard part for me. Mm. Really hard part. I've never left my kids for more than a weekend um, unless I had another one of them with me. They're grown now, but um, now they leave me. But they um, that was a really hard part for me. And I wanted to soft pedal it. I wanted to kind of leave that out or 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 gloss over it. And Joy essentially said to me, she didn't really talk to me. I'm not crazy. But she <laughs> said, you know, you, you you take it or leave it. I am who I am kind of thing. And if you're going to tell the story, you're going to tell the truth. And that's the point in telling this story is we're going to tell the story warts and all. Mm-hmm. and I had my reasons and please just make those reasons really clear. So I spent a long time in the front of the book, making those reasons really clear. Um, you know, the doctor told her to leave. She was doing the book on King Charles. She had a friend over there and bill. Yeah. But nobody can deny she wanted to meet her friend Jack. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was part of the reason she went a huge reason she went, but it wasn't the only reason she went. Um, and we have to give some grace for the time that it was in too. You couldn't jump on a plane and go for the weekend to England. You had to sail to England. Yeah. So it was different.
0: There was one thing I wanted to see. Am I reading too much into this? It was the instant in the book where Joy is sneaking through Jack's desk and has a little look at the letter that he's written to Ruth Pitter, mm-hmm. And she's rather upset when she finds that he's referred to her as the American. Mm-hmm. And she's rather jealous of the praise that he gives Pitter. When I was reading that, I couldn't help but think of Lucy in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader when she sneaks into the magician's house, looks through the spell book, and she's upset when one spell allows her to hear what one of her classmates thinks of her. And she considers casting a beauty spell because she's jealous of her sister Susan.
1: Whoa, I didn't even make that connection. I totally made that scene up because I needed to show her jealousy of Ruth Pitter. And so I was thinking, how can I show it? And it would be by seeing, because I have, we have the letters he wrote to Ruth Pitter. That's real. He did say that in a letter to her. And going back to Don King, um, maybe he'll talk about me as much as I talk about him. No, i um, He kidding. Uh, he has a great piece in Seven magazine, which is the Wade Center magazine, um, comparing Ruth and Joy in comparing their poetry and their personalities. And it was essentially an essay on why would Lewis choose joy over Ruth? And it's because of, in his opinion, um, the forthrightness of, of joy compared to the reticence of Ruth Pitter. In fictional format, now can I not just tell you that that happened or that that's a theory? I can show it to you in a scene that I imagined where she says, Do you admire her, you know, and how do you feel about her? Because that is something she would have wondered.
0: And that actually ties in very nicely with the next question that I wanted to ask. I want to talk about their romance a little bit. In the book, Jack puts his foot in his mouth by praising her for her manly virtue.
1: Yeah.
0: And I couldn't help but wonder, actually, was it something about this manly virtue that actually attracted him to her? Something that made Joy different and set her apart from other women? And that sounds wow. like the sort of thing that Dr. King was saying.
1: You know what? That's a really good point. I believe that he meant it as a compliment, obviously. As so, a man who
0: has said lots of stupid things to women when I'm trying to give them a compliment, totally understand.
1: Try Don't try that one the no. next time. Don't. So I think that he was trying to say that you have all the qualities of my best friends. Mm-hmm. You have all the qualities I admire. And so because all his friends were men, except for maybe Ruth Pitter and, and, you know, Dorothy. Yeah. um, And except for the two of them, you know, he didn't have, you know, best friends that were women. And I think he was trying to compliment her. And she said, well, how would you like it if I complimented you for your womanly qualities? So, but I think you're right. I think that part of the reason he was so attracted to her was that she had all those qualities that he found in a best friend. And maybe that's part of why it took him a little bit longer to see her as a love interest and not, you know, equal to one of the men in his group.
0: Regarding that compliment, I was going through my notes last night. My girlfriend came over and she made me promise to never compliment her on her manly virtues.
1: Did you promise you wouldn't? I did promise. Okay, good boy.
0: Not an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Katie, the listener I mentioned earlier when she said that when she was reading the book, she kept on wanting to yell, Joy's in love with you. Open your eyes, man. And she wants to know, did you ever want to just rush along the story to get them closer to the happy ending?
1: Absolutely. I wanted to rush it along. I wanted to rush him along. I was so frustrated with him. But as any time I get frustrated in a piece of work about imagination person out of my head or a real person like Lewis... That means I need to dig deeper into their motivations. That means there's something I don't understand. So there was a time where I kind of put the book aside for a little bit and read more about Lewis to try and understand his reticence. And I ran ran across a book on his um, medieval worldview and started to really read more about that. And it hit me that that was a huge reason for his reticence was that he called himself at heart. He said, I'm at heart, a medievalist. And he believed in living the virtues. And that would have include temperance and being careful and definitely not becoming involved with a divorced. And the first time he met a married woman from, from the States. So I think that a lot of his armor had to do with that, um, the virtues and you know, when he wrote, is it in, you probably know his work better, but um, in Abolition of Man where he talks about men without chests, mm-hmm. there's that weight of glory.
0: No, that's that's the Abolition of Man.
1: Abolition of Man, I got it right the first time. I, I love how he didn't use the word heart, he used the word chest. He was very careful about not letting the heart um, distract him. And so when you read all of that and you read the screw tape letters and you read his work and you read what he says about, men without chests, you realize that he was, I wouldn't use the word "scare," but from what I understand of him, he was very guarded in that way. Yes.
0: Particularly when you read Surprised by Joy, you see how his relationship with his father really nurtured his distrust of feelings.
1: Absolutely.
0: And the word that you just used there, armor, You use that a couple of times in the book, and it put me in mind of the part in Surprised by Joy when he says that he's on the bus in Headington and he realizes that he has this choice with God. He feels like he has this armor all about him, and he has the option of just loosening it a little bit. Mm. I can't help but think he just did the same thing with Joy. Because if you let God in or you let Joy in, all bets are off.
1: All bets are off. Oh, I love that. and. I think the minute she was given even a crack in that armor, (laughs) all
0: bets were off. Yeah. So to sort of start rounding things off, movies like Shadowlands offer their suggestions as to the difference that Joy made to Lewis's life. Mm -hmm. How do you think she changed him?
1: Oh. Well, for one thing, I think she cracked open his armor allowed him to feel again, allowed him to, I mean, in his words, I'm not going to guess in his words, he said, you know, allowed him to feel things that he thought were lost to him in his twenties. Um, those are his words, not mine. I think that his work more importantly was richer because of her. Um, part of why I wrote the book was that I was so frustrated how little credit she was given for the muse, best friend, love, wife and co-author she was to him and you know i often say i wanted us to stop talking about the woman behind the man and start talking about the woman beside the man mm. and i think that his last 13 years of his life because he lived 3 more years than her um and they had a 10 year relationship so the last 13 years of his life his work was drastically altered by her. You know, Till We Have Faces might not have been written. We wouldn't have this seminal work on grief. We wouldn't, you know, The Four Loves is one of the books that she really encouraged him to write along with the Psalm book. So I think she not only changed his heart and his life, but his work.
0: And finally, how's the experience of writing this book, of doing all of this research? digging into their minds, how has that changed you?
1: Well, first of all, it was one of the biggest pleasures of my writing career, and the hardest, and the most difficult. Um, it was not to be taken lightly, and I didn't take it lightly. I spent years on it and was let it kind of imbue my, my life. I thought about them, still do. The book's only been out a couple months, few months, You know, I still think about, and like I did with you, I I still see connections I hadn't made because that's the magic of a book being alive that I don't even see some of the connections that were right there in front of me. So I think it'll be a while before I see how it's changed me, but I do think it's made me more bold. Um, I do think it's made me a little bit more brave to speak my mind um, in a sweet way, but (laughs) Um, it's helped me not care as much what other people think. So, um, because joy wouldn't have cared and this is about her. And one of my favorite things about talking about this book is that I feel as if I'm not talking about myself. And usually when I'm talking about my other books, I spend so much time talking about why I imagined these characters, who they mean to me, why I made them up, what the book is about. And I feel a sense of boldness in in talking about this book because it's about her. And so I do believe she's and she also, as far as her spiritual journey, you know, she had such a profound respect for the mystery in it. And she was never scared to ask the questions. And I really love that as a preacher's kid. um, I really love the ability to ask the questions and not, and be bold enough to ask them. And she didn't accept anything at face value. She was going to find out for herself. She wanted to know what would satisfy her experience on her knees that night, her intellect, her logic, her experience. She wanted something that would answer all of those. And until the end, she was asking.
0: Well, Patty, thank you for a delightful conversation. This has
1: been so fun. Are you sure we're done?
0: (laughs) Well, before we wrap things up, uh, please feel free to tell the listeners about your upcoming projects and where they can find out more about you.
1: All right. So you can find more about me at my website, which is pattycallahanhenry.com or pattycallahan.com. It's the same website. My other novels are written under my full name. And one of the interesting things on my website is under the Mrs. Lewis book. There is a little blue dot and it says book club kit and it has loads of things that you can use to accompany reading. It has a timeline of their lives. It has questions. It has some facts about them. So if you want more reading, um, you can go there. My next novel comes out this summer and it's back in my contemporary Southern Roots Um, It was actually finished even before Mrs. Lewis, but it's not coming out till this summer. It's called The Favorite Daughter. And then I'm working on another historical set in the 1800s that will come out probably in 2020.
0: Excellent. And we look forward to your book about the preacher's kid who has to move schools regularly. I'm looking forward to that one.
1: Yeah. That memoir?
0: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That
1: one? You keep waiting for that, Okay. Okay. Thanks for having me.
0: As always, friends, please share this episode on social media. And speaking of which, I'm going to be giving away a free copy of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. So if you'd like a chance to win on Twitter and Instagram, just post your favorite line from one of Joy's poems and tag at Pints with Jack. After about a week or so, I'm going to pick my favorite and that person will get a free copy of the book. And next week, Matt and I will resume going through The Great Divorce. And we're going to be going further up
1: And further in. Cheers. Cheers.